The following sermon, entitled The Two Goats of the Day of Atonement, was preached on the morning of October 16, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. We will spend the time to read the whole chapter. The text for this morning's sermon is verses 7 through 10, and then verses 22 through 28. I will not be rereading those verses due to their length, but I ask that you pay special attention to the parts of the chapter that concern the two goats that are offered on this day. This is an account of the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He should put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle and with the linen miter shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and a ram and one ram for a burnt offering and Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering which is for himself and make an atonement for himself and for his house and now note especially verses 7 through 10 and he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him, and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness." And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and he is his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire, before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat 
of the sin offering that is for the people and bring His blood within the veil and do with that blood as He did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat before the mercy and before the mercy seat. And He shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall He do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat, and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and hallow it with the uncleanness from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And now notice especially verses 20-28. through 28. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar... He shall bring the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions, and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness." And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering shall, be, shall he burn upon the altar. And he that let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water and afterward come into the camp. And the bullock for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall one carry forth without the camp and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. And he that burneth them shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water and afterward he shall come into the camp. And this shall be a statute forever unto you that in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead shall make the atonement and shall put on the linen clothes 
even the holy garments. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation, and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priests, and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. When I have studied Leviticus 16 and what it tells us about the great day of atonement, I have at times wondered whether there is any Old Testament passage that sets before us the saving work of Jesus Christ so clearly and so vividly Certainly, there are other Old Testament passages that set before us our Savior in a very clear manner. For example, Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering servant. But with a large number of other Old Testament Scripture passages, one has to strain his spiritual eyes to make out our Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, in other Old Testament passages, one has to dig deeply in order to find how our Savior is presented there. But that's not the case in this passage. Like Isaiah 53, and perhaps even more so, Leviticus 16 paints us a picture of our Savior and how He went about His Saving work, it makes it vivid so that we can almost see it. And it's for that reason that this passage is entirely appropriate for us to consider on the occasion of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Because what is the Lord's Supper all about? It sets before our eyes physically the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in picture form so that we can by faith almost see His body being broken and His blood being shed. And Leviticus 16 does the very same thing. It paints us a picture. It helps us to see our Savior. It makes it vivid. It makes it beautiful for us. And that's why we consider this passage on this occasion. And we do so for the second time, if you will remember. For the last time we celebrated the Lord's Supper, we also had a sermon from Leviticus 16. These are not the same sermons, but there's enough here in Leviticus 16 that the passage warrants having two sermons. Last time we focused on the high priest and his entrance into the most holy place and the sprinkling of the blood upon the mercy seat. This time, we focus on the sin offerings made on behalf of the people, that is, the two goats, each of which points us in a unique way to the saving work of Jesus Christ. 
So the theme for this morning's sermon is the two goats of the Day of Atonement. First, we'll look at the twofold sin offering. Second, we'll look at the one and only Savior. And then third, we will look at the manifold blessing. So first, the two goats, the sin or the twofold sin offering. Second, the one and only Savior. And then finally, the manifold blessings. Among the different elements that are a part of the ceremony, the ritual of the Day of Atonement, the heart and center of them are these two goats that we read about. These were the two goats that were offered on behalf of the people, on behalf of the congregation. That makes them distinct from the offerings that Aaron offered for himself. As one who was a sinner, he had to make sacrifices for himself before he could function as a representative of the people. And that's what we looked at last time we were in this passage. In distinction from those offerings, offerings are made on behalf of the congregation. That's what we read about, for example, in verse 5. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So there's a a burnt offering, like Aaron had a burnt offering. And that's a picture of the the devotion, the, the consecration of the people unto Jehovah God. But what we want to focus on are the two goats that make up the the sin offering. And what's so interesting, what's so unique is that while both goats are a sin offering, Yet they each function as a sin offering in a very different way. Each is used for a different purpose. And that's what comes out in verses 8 and following. Rather, verses 7 and following. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. The idea is for a regular sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. So two goats are brought forward on behalf of the people They cast lots. One is going to be a regular sin offering. The other is going to be what's called the scapegoat. And let's look at each of them in turn. First, one goat would be a regular sin offering. The sin offering is described for us more fully in one of the earlier chapters in the book of Leviticus. And we see some of the same details here. The high priest would lay his hand upon the head of that goat as a symbol of the transfer of sin to that animal. The sins of the people are being imputed to the animal. The high priest would then slay the goat and collect the blood from the animal. And that was a part of the what made that unique because that blood was then carried inside of the tabernacle. And with the regular sin offering, it was applied to that golden altar of incense just outside of the veil, so within the holy place. But on the Day of Atonement, the priest 
carries it further. And He now carries that blood within the veil and applies it not to the golden altar outside the veil, but the mercy seat within the most holy place. That's what we read in verse 15. Then shall He kill the goat of the sin offering. That is for the regular sin offering. That is for the people, so not His own. And bring His blood within the veil into the most holy place. And do with that blood as He did with the blood of the bullock. That is the bullock that He had for His own sin offering. And sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before or in front of the mercy seat. So one goat is offered as a regular sin offering. And with the exception of the blood being applied to the mercy seat, really there's nothing unique about this particular sin offering. What is unique with the Day of Atonement is this second goat. What Scripture calls the, the scapegoat. As with the regular sin offering, the process, the ceremony starts with the symbolic transfer of sin and guilt to the animal. That's verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send them away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. So Aaron would lay his hands upon the head of the goat. And Scripture tells us he would confess their sins. And understand, this was not just a a generic confession of sin. But the Scriptures speak of their iniquities, plural. Their transgressions, plural. This involved confessing specific sins. He gave concrete examples of the sins of the people. And as he's confessing those sins, the idea is that those sins are being imputed, transferred, to the animals so that we read that their sin, that he was putting their sins upon the head of the animal. And then in verse 22, we read that the goat shall bear, he shall carry upon him all their iniquities. So that this goat was now the sin bearer. This goat had upon him their sins and transgressions. All of that is similar to what happened with the regular sin offering. But what happens next is what makes the scapegoat especially unique. Because this animal is not killed. It's kept alive. And it's carried out into the wilderness and left there. That's the end of verse 21. And shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. The end of verse 22. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. It's because this happens to the goat that it's called what it is. The scapegoat. In the original Hebrew, that word scapegoat is a compound word. So one word made up of two different words. The noun for a goat and the verb that means to go away. To depart. In fact, we could translate this as the goat of disappearing. Because after the confession of sin is made, this goat is led away and left in the wilderness never to be seen again. It disappears. 
And all of this was a picture of the removal of Israel's sins far, far away from them. And indeed, these sins were brought far away. That's the reason a fit man is the one doing this. That's the end of verse 21. And shall send them away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. Somebody who's in shape. Because we do not want somebody who is not in good shape and can only get just outside the camp and then he's tired and he's got to come walking back and there's a chance that the goat follows him and here come all the sins of the people back. No, we need someone who's fit, who can carry him far, far away. And he leaves him there. And when this man comes back, none of the sins are to follow him. And that's the reason he, he washes himself when he gets back. That's, verses, that's verse 26. And he that let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water and afterward come into the camp. And he, he washes himself outside the camp to show that none of the sins that were upon the goat somehow were then transferred to him and then carried back into the camp. So that all of this is a picture of the, the removal of our sins. And it's in light of this ceremony, this ritual that we've just explained that we understand the reason why this is called the Day of Atonement. We've looked at the, the ceremony, the ritual, and now we want to look at the, the theology that is being taught here. And the, the main theological point is that an atonement for sin is being made. That's the language that we find throughout, for example... In verse 24, we read, And he shall wash his flesh, this is the high priest, with water in the holy place, and put on his garments, and come forth, and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of people, and make an atonement for himself and for the people. Same thing in verse 30. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you. In fact, that phrase, make an atonement, is found 15 times in this one chapter. That's the heart and center of this day. And that word atonement, to make an atonement, comes from a verb that means to cover, to propitiate. And this is a, a theologically rich term. There's no one way of describing it. So that included in this idea of atonement is the the removal of sin and guilt from the people. The, the sins are taken off of the people, off of the congregation. And they're then covered. Not in the sense of covering them up the way that the bread is being covered right now by napkins so that you cannot see it, but covered in the sense of paid for. They're taken care of. And that happens through the satisfaction of God's justice. For these sins to be paid for means that the, the debt that we owe on account of our sin must be paid for. God's wrath, that punishment, must be endured. It must be borne by someone in order for satisfaction to be made. And that satisfaction is made 
by a substitutionary sacrifice. One takes the place of another and gives his life. That's the reason there's bloodshed here. The blood of the animal was uh, represented the life of the animal so that we have the giving of a life for the life of another. There's a vicarious element to this what's happening here. And the result of all this is that the relationship that was damaged is now restored. Whereas there was enmity between God and His people, there's now peace. There's, all, there's now fellowship. All of that, and I just said for the last couple moments, is all included under that idea of the high priest making an atonement. We're talking about the removal of our sins through the satisfaction of God's justice by means of a a substitutionary sacrifice that results in the restoration of that relationship. And both goats point to this truth. The atonement of our sins. This is true of the the regular sin offering because with the regular sin offering, we have the the shedding of the blood. The giving of a life. And what is more, that animal was taken outside the camp and burned. That's something I failed to mention earlier when we were going through the ceremony. But let's note it now in verses 27 and 28. This is with the regular sin offering, after the blood is shed, sprinkled upon the mercy seat, there was one other step that I should have mentioned before in verse 27. And the bullock for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, the bullock being Aaron's, the goats being the people's, whose blood was brought in to make an atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without, that is outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. And he that burneth them shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. So that's a part of the ceremony. Now when we're talking about the theology here, we recognize that this points us to the satisfaction of God's justice. The whole idea of burning points to the the fiery wrath of our God and the, the payment of sin so that this regular sin offering points us especially to what we call the propitiation of our sins, the the payment of our sin. But the scapegoat's also a picture. And whereas the, the regular sin offering, that goat, points to the propitiation of our sins, the scapegoat teaches us especially what's called the expiation of our sins. That is, the, the removal of our sins. Because our sins are, are carried away. They're taken off of us and removed far from us. And the result of that is that that relationship that was damaged is now restored. We can have fellowship with our God. So what, these two, what this twofold sin offering teaches us is the whole truth of the atonement of our sins. What a beautiful picture this must have been for the Old Testament Israelites. 
Oh, how they must have looked forward to the day of atonement. Because they understood their own sins. They knew that spiritually they were unclean before the eyes of this holy God. That's what the law taught them. Especially the ceremonial laws that precede this very chapter. In, verses, in chapters 11-15, through 15, so the immediate context, we have all of those ritual laws telling us what makes a man unclean versus clean. And Israel was left with the conclusion, we are spiritually dirty. We're defiled on account of our sin. And they knew that. And that's why a part of the day involved an expression of their repentance. They fasted for that purpose. That's what we read about in verse 29. Verse 29, And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls. And the idea of that language, afflict your souls, it's, it's talking about the fact that the people would fast on this day. In fact, this is the one instance in the Old Testament of fasting being required of the Old Testament saints. But that fasting was ultimately representative of their sorrow for sin. That's why we read in that verse, not you shall afflict your bodies, but you shall afflict your souls. Because the fasting was representative of their sorrow for their sin. It was an expression of their repentance. All because they knew their sinfulness. So they knew their sinfulness. They repented. There was the whole confession of sin that we already talked about. The fact that they confessed their iniquities. That is, those things that made them guilty. They confessed their transgressions. That is, their rebellions against the Most High God. The people knew they were sinners. And thus for them, the Day of Atonement was something they looked forward to. Because it set before them in a clear picture the removal of their sins. Imagine yourself as an Old Testament Israelite watching the high priest place his hands upon the head of that animal and confessing your sins so that those sins are now upon the head of that substitute who bears them, who carries them away. And now picture that fit man coming and taking the animal, that goat, and watch him walk away. As he slowly fades on the horizon to the point that you cannot see him. He's gone. And sometime later you walk him, you watch him walk back into camp. No goat. Before he gets into camp, he washes himself to make sure that none of the the spiritual uncleanness placed upon that animal is going to make its way back to you. 
What joy. What assurance that would give you. My sins are gone. They've been removed far, far from me. They've disappeared as far as I'm concerned. Never to be seen again. Carried far, far away by a fit man. That's the good news of this Day of Atonement. This was a cause for joy. And the people had this joy. They had this assurance. Because in all of this, they saw the coming of the Messiah. And His saving work, obviously, all of this points us to the saving work of Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior who is the fulfillment of both goats at the very same time. In Leviticus 16, we have two animals pointing to the the atonement of our sins. In reality, we have one and only Savior who is the fulfillment of each of them. For Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that regular sin offering. For He's the one who went to the altar that is the cross of Calvary. And there His blood was shed. There He gave His life as a substitute on behalf of and in the place of His people. It was there that He endured the fiery wrath of God outside of the camp. That's what Scripture itself tells us, for example, in Hebrews 13, verses 11 and 12. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp, wherefore Jesus also that He might sanctify the people with His own blood suffered without the gate. It's a reference to the fact that when Jesus Christ was crucified, He's led out of the city of Jerusalem. He's crucified outside of the city. And it was there that He was burned. And that He endured the wrath of God against our sins. He he endured the whole of it and He felt it upon every part of His being. And it's on that basis then that we have the propitiation of sins. They're paid. God's justice has been satisfied. The punishment has been meted out. Christ is the fulfillment of the sin offering. And at the very same time, He's the fulfillment of the, the scapegoat. Because all of our sins were placed upon His head. And He bore them. He carried them all of His life long. And He carried them to the cross. And He left them there. Never to be seen again. That's why we read what we do in Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. They've been completely removed. It's impossible for them to come back. Because they've all been paid for. 
And having left them there at the cross, He then comes back in the sense that He rises again from the dead without any of our sin left upon Him. They've all been removed. They were all left at the cross, left in the grave. And as those who are in Jesus Christ, we are now made clean even as He is clean. Two goats, but one Savior. And really, that speaks to the glory, the wonder of His saving work. Each goat by itself is insufficient to, to portray the wonder of our salvation. And the reality is that these are but two types and shadows found on the pages of, Old Testament, on the pages of the Old Testament. There are many, many others. And all of them point us in some way, shape, or form to the saving work of Jesus Christ. We need dozens, we need hundreds of different types to capture the glory, the wonder of who our Savior is and what He's done on our behalf. But even with the types, they, they still don't do it justice because they were but types. They were but shadows. For you see, Jesus Christ did. He accomplished what no goat, no animal could possibly do in that He actually paid for our sins. He actually saves. And we say that because, again, Scripture itself makes very clear the blood of these animals is not actually saving these people. It's Hebrews 10, verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. It's not possible that they could actually take away sins because these animals could not function as our representatives. They're, they're goats or some other animal. And if we need... If we're going to have someone take our place, it must be a man. And what is more, they're but mere creatures. They cannot sustain the burden of God's wrath. They can't survive that. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. But what these goats could not do, our Savior has done. He actually saves us. That's Hebrews 10 verses 11 and 12 now. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. His death actually saves. And it does that because he can represent us. Because He's the, the man, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And what is more, He could sustain the burden of God's wrath because at the same time, He's Jehovah God in human flesh. And thus, He truly delivered us from all of our sins. He did what no goat could do. And it's on the basis of that work 
that there are so many blessings for His people. We looked at two goats and saw how they point us to one Savior, but in that one Savior, there are manifold blessings for His people. We will mention four. First, forgiveness. That's really the main message. That's the main point. That's the main blessing here in view. And is there anything more wonderful in all the world in light of our own sinfulness? We too are spiritually dirty and unclean people. And we were reminded of that this past week as we examined ourselves. And perhaps you came this morning with a great burden on your soul. What was it? What's that sin, child of God, that was weighing so heavily on you as you walked through the doors of the church building this morning? A sin of youth? A besetting sin that you've committed again and again and again? A particular sin that reared its ugly head this week? By faith, see your Savior Jesus Christ. See that sin, whatever it is that weighs on you, that's a burden to your soul. See that sin placed upon His head. It's removed off of your head, off of your shoulders, onto your Savior. And He carried it all of His life long. And He paid for it. It's gone. It was carried away by a fit man. So far away, you'll never see it again. It's disappeared. That's forgiveness. And that's the blessing we have on the basis of His saving work. But now not only do we have forgiveness in the second place, we have assurance of this. And we have this assurance exactly because We do not have to perform any works to earn or gain this salvation or this forgiveness. Did you notice that was a part of this passage? The exclusion of all working? It was verse 29. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. Verse 31, And it shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute of ever. This is a day of rest. No working is allowed. In fact, Leviticus 23 puts it stronger that you'll be cut off if you do any work on this day. And is that not fitting? That on this day in which our salvation and the work of Christ is so vividly portrayed in a beautiful picture, there is no working allowed. 
You can almost hear Jesus Christ saying in this passage, Come unto Me, all you who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because when it comes to the, the payment of our sins, when it comes to the removal of our sins, that's not something we have to earn. It's not something we have to work for. But instead, we rest in the finished work of another. And it's because that's true. We have assurance. We're not left wondering, have I done enough? Is, is my faith strong enough? Or do I have enough good works that I've now paid off the debt or earned God's favor? But it's based entirely on the work of Christ. And thus we have the confidence, the assurance, yes, my sins are forgiven. Having that assurance, that forgiveness and that assurance means in the third place, we have fellowship. And we say that in light of the broad context here in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is all about how a sinful people can possibly have fellowship with a holy and a righteous God. In the book of Leviticus, the the laws in it remind the people that of yourself, it's impossible. You are a sinner. There's no way you could have access to this God. That's precisely why the book starts the way it does with a number of chapters on the sacrifices, the offerings, all of which point us to our Savior Jesus Christ, all of which is saying, here's the basis for fellowship with this God. This is how you may have access to Him. And because our Savior has made the once and for all sacrifice for our sin, truly our fellowship is with the Father. We can now speak to Him. We can live with Him. We can commune with Him. And we will do that in a special way as we sit down at a table and enjoy a meal with Him this morning. That's fellowship. And that's one of the blessings for us that we see in this passage. There's forgiveness. There's assurance. There's fellowship. And joy. Because this is a feast day. This is not a funeral that the people are coming to. This is not some somber occasion, but it's a feast. It's a celebration. It's a a day of rejoicing. And that's an important part of the, the overall picture here. That on the basis of the saving work of Jesus Christ, we have joy. Joy knowing the forgiveness of sins. Joy that flows from the assurance of our salvation. Joy that's a part of the the fellowship that we have with our God. All of which is to say joy, happiness, gladness. In our Savior Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who has taken away your sins and mine. Amen. Father in heaven, our hearts are full. Thy word comes to us and tells us, open wide thy mouth of longing and I will satisfy 
your needs. And we have come this morning as weak, weary sinners looking to Thee, and Thou hast opened Thy hand wide. Thou hast fed us. Thou hast satisfied our souls with the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Blessed be Thy name. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.